Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum. This is Jordan Stefaniak here, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one way we've tried to talk about that is by creating an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Now, intellectual culture is just a fancy word for saying, let's repeat the same sort of virtues and ideas and try to model them as best we can. And hopefully, by some form of osmosis, that impacts you. Like, you know, everybody knows about sort of culture, how that impacts you like subconsciously. And that's sort of the idea here. Not like we're trying to do subliminal messaging, but you get the point. This is the Hanover House. And so today it's just me and Morgan hanging out. So you guys know Morgan. He's a pastor down in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach. And we're going to talk about some stuff. We'll see where we go. I don't know where it goes. I, I want to mention first off, I today, I don't know when you're going to listen to this. I, I might make this available to everybody. So we started, we've been using the same podcast host for since we started like three and a half, four years ago. And then they came out with the ability to do this, like the bonus episode content stuff, which was really cool. So we started doing that. But man, the way that they did it was they put, whether you subscribe to it or not, it would show you all those episodes in your podcast feed, which annoyed me. And I have access to all of them. So I know it annoys other people. So I went like talk to all sorts of podcast places, an obnoxious amount of emails and phone calls and I migrating everything to a new place so that if you don't subscribe, you don't see all that extra bonus stuff. So you don't have to worry about it. So I'm happy with that. That's been a learning experience. I thought maybe um, those, uh, having those on there would, um, just sort of dangle a carrot out in front of people, you know? So every day you know, they just see those, that little lock button and they're like, man, I don't, I really don't, I want that episode. Well, to me, I'd rather just like put them in occasionally so that it's not like overwhelming because we're creating so much extra content that I was like, man, you look at the last 10 episodes and only like two of them can you listen to. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like, I need to find a solution for this. Um, and the reason we do that is not because we, we want to like become rich. I promise you, we're not making anywhere near enough money to do any of that. We're making less than enough money. Basically, there's, there's costs involved with um, these recording platform softwares that we use. There's cost in the editing software that we have to use. There's cost in the podcast hosting software that we need to use. It's like all those things cost a lot of money. Um, and so I've just been like, instead of like it all coming out of my pocket and doing it that way, let's all support together. And hopefully if we do actually make any money, we can invest, reinvest that in creating more content because we've got all sorts of ideas about how and what to create in the future, which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. And you guys will find out more about some of the stuff we've got coming down eventually. Do you feel yeah, like that's... we've gotten a, um, you feel like we've gotten a good response on some of the new, uh, new shows we're, we're doing. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think Jake and Jesse, uh, they, they are putting in a ton of work on that show. 
Uh, and I don't think there's anything quite like it out there talking just about Baptist history, Baptist identity, um, from everybody who's been watching it and listening to it, I've heard like extremely positive stuff about that. So if you're not familiar, generally particular Jake Stone, Jesse Owens, Jesse is the Arminian Baptist, Jake's the Calvinist Baptist, and they just talk about <laughs> Baptist history, which is cool. Um, and they're on YouTube, so you can go watch that, whether you subscribe or not. If you want to subscribe, um, then you have it on podcast format. You can do that. You can click the links and whatever and take you there and, and listen to it that way. And then I've been creating my show. Um, it's called Kiffin's Keep, and I'm just talking about random stuff. Not random. I've got ideas for it. Um, I've got a whole content calendar planned out. Just It helps to some degree. It helps me to so, like clarify and clearly communicate some of the stuff that I like research stuff mm -hmm. that I've been working on. Because mm -hmm. when you get in research mode, it can get pretty intense mm -hmm. and it can be difficult to communicate to a more average person who just isn't in like immersed in that literature. So it's mm -hmm. been useful for me, if nothing else, to, to be good at communicating stuff. And people seem to like it. I think they comment on my videos. We have, we have one guy who comments on a bunch of our videos. He doesn't like them though. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I find that to always be true too. Like whenever I'm got ideas rolling around in my head, but if I force myself like either to teach something at the church or write something down, it's like, it just really like forces me to, to think it out, think out the conclusions and like work out the, the arguments and that sort of thing. So I find that to be the case. That's, that's yeah, real, so it's re really selfish of you, Jordan, but thanks for sharing that with us. So, so, so I just realized we have two people who are watching right now. Hey, hey. So if you, if you're listening to this after the fact, then you can't ask a question, but if you're watching this right now, you are able to ask questions and we will talk about them. I don't really have an agenda today except for to hang out with Morgan. <clears throat> there was one question I got on YouTube though. Mm -hmm. that reminds me. And, um, I can't remember who asked this, but I pasted it in my notes. He asked a question of how did you all counsel someone wanting to move from a typical Southern Baptist church? to a 1689 church. I would assume Morgan, you have thoughts. My initial thought is you have to live somewhere that there actually is a 1689 <laughs> church for that to even be yeah. <laughs> a possibility. Um, and then second is I want to know why you want to move. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you mean by typical SBC church? There's a lot of bad reasons to move churches. Now, to be clear, I'm not the guy who says you can never change churches. There's, there seems to be some, at some point, everybody was like switching churches a bunch and there was like, hey, don't do that. You should never move your church. Mm -hmm. I don't think church membership is a lifelong commitment like to one local church where you can never move to go to a different one. Even mm -hmm. if it's in the same city, I think you, you if you have a legitimate good reason and it makes sense, like go ahead and move. You're not like breaking any rules. There's no text in scripture that says, thou shalt only be member of First Baptist Jerusalem and none other. Like you should be a member of a local church. You shouldn't be rash and like leave just for silly things. Mm -hmm. But you know, there can be, there's seasons of life that you, for some reason you need to be at a different local church in your area. And it makes sense. Like, so I don't want to be the guy who says you can't go anywhere, but I would just have to say like, why do you want to move? And a lot of 16 churches are like, I don't, a lot of them, you get, you just gotta know what you're getting yourself into. Like, there's a <laughs> like, look, know. the more precise doctrinal churches, you just got to be careful. Like there's sometimes they, they're 
great on doctrine, but bad on people. So like, well, that's the thing is, is that's exactly right. I mean, I think what come the first thing that comes to my mind is as, as important it is to have a, a solid confession. It's certainly not the only thing that matters uh, in a local church. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's probably some churches that hold to 1689 or New Hampshire or some other thing, but like their actual functional, like let's say week to week preaching may not be what you're, uh, that's something that feeds you. That's actually like working through the, through the text of scripture and that sort of thing. Um, or, um, I mean, it just, I guess in a way it just brings up a lot of other questions. What, what does matter, uh, when someone's yeah. looking for a local church? I mean, I know for me, I, I just recently talked to a college student, uh, about this. They were talking to me about, uh, I was out on the, out, out at the campus of coastal Carolina and they were talking about, Hey, I've been going to this church for a few months, but I'm not really sure. And I just asked them the question. I was like, what do you think a healthy church should look like? Like, what are some important components? And and the, the kid was like, I've never thought about it. And I was like, yeah, well, like when I was your age, I hadn't thought about it either, you know? And it wasn't really until I got introduced to like nine marks and started reading some of that stuff that I actually started thinking through like, okay, like maybe there's actually some things that kind of make up a local church. Not And, and again, not that a confession isn't a really important part of that, but it's certainly not the only, only part. Um, yeah. I know... Um, I don't know. I, we've never really talked that much about our, our background. I, I, we've kind of snippets here and there, but I think both your dad was a pastor, right? Or is a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yes. So my dad is too. And, um, I don't know what it was like for you, but the first time I ever had to look for my own church was actually when I moved to Raleigh. So for, for seminary. So I was like post mm. post, um, undergrad. So I graduated with my undergrad and so it wasn't until I was, I don't know, what, 21 years old, 22 years old for the first time that I ever had to actually look for my own church. And um, yeah, like you, you walk in and you're like, do I feel welcomed here? Do I, you know, you know, do I resonate with the preaching? Do I feel like I can worship God here? Um, and, and so I don't know, all those things I feel like are important. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I was just thinking about my own, like where I'm at now. I think there might be one 1689 church. And I remember when we first moved here, looking at it and like looking at like the sermon archive and it was like a bunch of sermons about like anti-social justice. <laughs> and to me, I'm like, uh, to like, sure. Mm -hmm. Talk about that stuff. But like, if that's like the main diet of your preaching, like just no thanks, not interested. Yeah. I'm interested in the Bible, not to say that there's nothing to say from the Bible about social justice, yeah. but just like, I just don't want to be in something that's obsessed one way or another mm -hmm. with something like that. Well, it seems to me to indicate on health. And I think too, like maybe even just brings up the Nate, like what is preaching, you know, like what is the, mm -hmm. what, what is the goal of preaching? What's the purpose of it? Um, I mean, I really hope anybody that ends up listening to this doesn't take us the wrong way. I mean, if I'm sure. being honest with you, I've actually, I've literally never stepped foot in a church that is a 1689 church. So I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I have made, I have like all these assumptions in my head that are not really that real, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, anyway, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, preaching. Yeah, man. I feel like, yes, like you want to draw out the doctrine uh, throughout the text as you're proclaiming the whole counsel of God's word. But like, I think you almost have to be just as good, if you can hear this the right way, like of a counselor. And what I mean by that is being able to apply that doctrine mm -hmm. to people's mm -hmm. lives in meaningful ways. Um, and, and I feel like sometimes um, that's underestimated, like how important that is. 
And I think that's probably why there's probably even churches that are really healthy uh, that don't necessarily check the same confessional boxes that we do. Uh, because when they are working through the preaching of the text of scripture, that that minister, that pastor really is faithfully applying uh, the truth of God to people's lives. And so even though we may quibble over certain doctrines or quibble over certain, you know, uh, particular things on, on what they believe, uh, there's still a faithful pastor who's expounding the word week in, week out and um, administering the ordinances. And, 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 and so, yeah, I think there's a lot more to it than just the confession. Yeah. I mean, it may come, I don't know. I don't remember where I tell personal details. You know, I, my dad's pastor, multiple churches over a period of time. I think we, he was at the same church from when I was like in fifth grade to about like two years ago, actually. So he was there for like 20 plus years or something. Um, just recently moved to a new church so they could be closer to us because um, my two brothers, both bachelors, who knows if they'll ever have kids. So we're the only ones. <laughs> so let's move nice. closer. But my one of my brothers is also in North Carolina, so it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, um, where was I going? Okay, so that church context for that, it's I like to think of what I grew up in is sort of like North Point, except on a smaller scale. That was like the that was sort of like the exemplary. Mm -hmm. Andy Stanley is mm -hmm. doing everything right. We mm -hmm. want to do everything like him. Mm -hmm. Craig Grushell and Life Church. I don't know if that's still a thing. If it is, then you, you'll know. Let's do stuff from him. So like mm -hmm. there were times where my pastor, he would like plagiarize Craig Rochelle stuff, plagiarizing literally word for word, mm -hmm. illustrations, Francis Chan, like all that stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what he would do. Pretty, I think he retired recently. So I, I don't feel bad saying that out loud. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize any of that until I left. And so then it was like, wow, this is bad. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that's my context. I go to college. Um, pretty much my my advice from my dad was like, join a church, join a cool church. He didn't say it like that, mm -hmm. but like join a similar styled church. And so I ended up joining a Wesleyan church and was a member there for all my time in college. And I wasn't really doctrinally aware or understanding of mm -hmm. anything for mm -hmm. a period of time. By the time I graduate, I had become a Calvinist and I realized I don't fit in here. But I was so ingrained in the life of the church. I knew I'd leave that I was like, I'm going to stay here until I move to go to seminary. Mm -hmm. Go to seminary, visit several churches. And very, like I was very serious asking all the questions. I'd meet with the pastors. I had my notepad with all my questions of like, do you have elders? How do they function? Are you elder rule or elder led? You know, you know all that, <laughs> all that stuff. Going through my whole list as any single seminary dude would do, join a church and really great experience there. Loved it before we moved here, I don't know, five years ago. And I tell you what, having kids and having a wife makes finding a church far more difficult mm -hmm. than being a single dude. Cause I feel like as a single guy for the longest time, like I could go to pretty much any church and be happy. Mm -hmm. Now, when you add in kids and wife <laughs> in the mix, it just, it makes things more complicated because mm -hmm. you have to like be aware of different people's own situation. I got to think, okay, how are my kids going to grow in mm -hmm. this church? Is this something that makes sense for them? That's welcoming to them. That's going to, because for me, I'm pretty big on having my kids in the worship service. It's extremely difficult, mm -hmm. but I, I value that significantly. So there have been some churches that we visited in the past that have basically all but told you, we don't want your kids in here. Please put them over there in the other room. Mm -hmm. And that has, 
clear than like, okay, I don't want yeah. to come back here. <laughs> so even if you've got check all these other boxes, um, but yeah. Okay. So I'm tell you guys, you guys are watching Morgan, tell, tell a story or something. My two-year-old just walked out of his bed and I got to go put him back in. Okay. All right. Maybe <laughs> I'll tell a little bit about my background. Um, yeah. So my dad, uh, is a pastor as well. And when I was younger, he pastored a church similar, uh, I guess, but maybe slightly different. It was more in the vein of like uh, Saddleback um, or uh, Willow Creek, sort of the model. And um, yeah, actually kind of he planted the church with that model and it, it kind of blew up because um, that model, um, you know, taps into to felt needs and um, it even uh, targets like certain types of people. Uh, that was like almost the way, you know, it was almost like this this idea, which now looking back, it kind of feels really odd. Um, but I mean, not saying there wasn't good ministry there, there was, and, and there was um, some real effective ministry, especially, um, I guess a Saddleback that's uh, connected to doing, you know, recovery, Christian recovery ministry. And that's a really strong um, kind of powerful thing. Um, but, you know, as I, as I got older and started to read and, and, and kind of both read my Bible more and more and more, but also read books and, and listen you know, to other things. Um, you know, I started to, to kind of rethink not just theology in a way, I almost feel like it was theology first. And I don't know if that's that way for most people, but um, as you begin to question or think through the theology um, that you uh, grew up with, um, but then um, as you begin to kind of process your theology and process that it, it also opens you up to philosophy of ministry. And, and I feel like you begin to maybe question that as well. So now you're, you're starting to really rethink, okay, you know, what was my church experience and, and what was that like for me, um, you know, growing up? And um, I definitely got to a place where my ministry shifted. But uh, the interesting thing for me is, um, I guess it was around 15 years ago, uh, my dad, through a number of different circumstances, ended up planting a, a second church. And he planted his second church under like a completely different um, philosophy of ministry. At that point, he had been really influenced by nine marks as well. Uh, I think he'd even shifted theologically some. And he and I were a lot more aligned um, uh, as far as our theology and our philosophy of ministry. And, um, and so what's really cool now is after going to seminary, I'm now back and serving with my dad uh, alongside of him as the associate pastor at the church that he planted 15 years ago. Um, so, um, anyway, Jordan, I was just basically saying that, um, for me, it kind of similar to you in that I started, um, like my journey kind of processing my childhood and processing what life was like for me started with theology, but then it's sort of, after I sort of had this big theological migration, it's, it, it started getting me questioning philosophy of ministry as well. And, um, and so that's kind of. Uh, but w the cool thing for me is, like, again, my dad sort of went al went along that same journey as well. And so uh, we're a lot more aligned now. And, and um, it's such a man, a real privilege that I get to kind of do ministry alongside of him and and that we don't feel like we're pulling in two different directions, that we really feel like we're, um, yeah, on the same page and, and aligned in a lot of ways. So, um, man, just super thankful for that. And um, and uh, yeah, man, just church stuff is ch church stuff is funny. Like church stuff is just weird. It's, I, I definitely, um, I think it's uh, Bonhoeffer just talks about like your sort of wish dream uh, church. And I definitely went through some of those stages where I just had to realize that like, 
Um, you know, every church, some churches are going to check more boxes than others. Some churches are going to kind of resonate, quote unquote, with me more than others. But at the end of the day, um, it's hard. Like love is hard. Love is difficult. You know, it's always going to, there are always going to be people that I'm going to have to be patient with. And there's always going to be people that are going to have to be patient with me. There's always going to be people I'm going to have to forgive and always going to be people that I'm going to have to ask forgiveness from. And um, those are the things that um, kind of make like local church life, I think, really what they are. And um, I think regardless of your confessional statement, um, those are things that you're going to have to to deal with. So, I mean, maybe to bring yeah. it back to the, how you brought this up at the beginning, if we were going to counsel somebody, um, I hope by now they would kind of hear that the first thing I think we would say is like, hey, there's a, just a lot more to consider than just what's on the paper, you know, like what confessions yeah. on the paper. I think there's a lot more to consider, a lot more to think about um, that plays into that decision. Yeah. I mean, committees are annoying, all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I get it. But just like, make sure that you're making that right decision for the right reasons. And that you re realize that having sounder doctrine doesn't always indicate actually a sounder polity. Mm -hmm. Like you can ha check all the boxes polity wise, but functionally you're not actually mm -hmm um, appropriately doing it. And as I've gotten older, there was a period where I was very much in like, I oh, mean, I want my pastor to be able to preach like awesome. And I've gotten older. I'm like, I don't care as much. Just like open the Bible, talk about it. And I just want my pastor to really love me and know my name mm -hmm. and to like care about me mm -hmm. and to pray for me. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I want in a pastor. I, mm -hmm. as long as you, as long as you get up there and you open the Bible and you talk about it, like, I don't care if you're a rock star or not. <laughs> You can be pretty boring. I, I'm going to be happy because I know the Lord works through his word. You don't have to be a very gifted uh, teacher in that way. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm like, I just want somebody who actually loves his people. Do you think that's something that uh, for you is like as you've matured and you've learned how to like read God's word for yourself, it's like you feel almost less dependent on this awesome sermon to like jazz you up or – or I don't know, is it more of like maybe just a, something you see in our wider culture where people are just like, hey, I'm just less interested in a uh, I'm less interested in a um, I don't know what I'm trying to say a popular person. And I'm just more interested in someone who's just faithful and, and just can can shepherd me. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe some some mashup of both. I don't, I don't know. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't have a good answer other than just. I th probably to some degree live context is just like, I want somebody who, who cares for me and loves me and mm -hmm. loves my family yeah. and knows me. Yeah. And yeah. Do I, would I love to have somebody who's like an excellent teacher? Of course. But if that excellent teacher is never present and doesn't know who you are mm -hmm. to me, like that just like, I can go listen to a podcast if I really want to hear yeah. an awesome, like I know there's a lot of great preachers out there I can go listen to. Mm -hmm. And if I really want to do that, I can and may, so maybe may, may, I don't know it could be just live context it could be like growth what I'm trying to set be. you up for is to tell us how much you've matured and how much uh, how, yes. how, how wise you are on your own and how you you're a well, self, see, you're a self feeder and no 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 I I, I hate the self feeding <laughs> stuff like man just we, we don't want to we want to teach you to self feed I'm like that's not how that works exactly uh, I've it's, just come it's more weird to, right anyway yeah I've come more to a conclusion of just like, I, I trust the spirit's work and the yeah. application of his word a whole lot more. Mm, that's good. I don't feel the need to have like an excellent sermon with like 10 exact, very specific application points. Cause that used to be something that I would do in my own teaching mm -hmm. was like, I felt like I had to give them a really bite sized, easy, like 
okay, how do I apply this text? Okay, go home on your fridge, put a dot and do that. Like I used mm-hmm. to be real specific with it. I just don't feel like I need to do that because mm-hmm. I think it's based on my own growth and based on what I think scripture teaches. It's more just like, just teach the Bible, mm-hmm. tell people, don't steal, don't lie. And the Lord will impress that on who needs to hear it and will bring to mind those realities that need to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could talk about anything. Like, I don't think a preacher, like you could talk about sexual immorality and you could press on, like, don't look at pornography. Like you, people know what that mm-hmm. means and how to apply it. And mm-hmm. the spirit, if you're a Christian, will work in that person's life and will apply it directly and say, look, dude, Mm-hmm. I know what you're doing at night. I know what you're doing at work. I know. And we'll bring like with way more specificity mm-hmm. than any teacher could ever have. Mm-hmm. And I know there's times where you, a teacher could just say something and it just so happens to be, that's the exact situation this person's following. Mm-hmm. The Lord works in cool ways like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's really the the normal means Mm-hmm. of how that works. So I've just become less dependent on like super specific application and just trusting the spirit over time to reveal those things and to impress those areas that need to be fixed and, and changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just, there's a lot of th- like, just if your church recites things like the apostles creed and has a regular cadence on the Lord's supper, those things have become very meaningful to me and encouraging to me uh, and helps me to refocus and recalibrate. I've thought all the time, especially when I first had kids, like, the like necessity to me of that local church Sunday. Cause I was like, I just feel exhausted and drained and mm-hmm. I'm not really having any time to like think about stuff or whatever, mm-hmm. but that weekly just refreshing recalibration was super important for me. Mm-hmm. So that's a long winded way. I don't mm-hmm. know what you, well, your experience. Well, no, I think in some way, I think what you're saying maybe ties into what something I was saying earlier about how, like, as your theology changes, it inevitably impacts your philosophy of ministry. And I think, you know, basically what you're describing is, you know, this age old question of like how people change, you know, like um, there's a really great book uh, that I uh, have read a few times by uh, David Pallison. I think it's called how sanctification works or something like that. But I mean, basically the basic question is, you know, trying to answer the question, how people change and, depending on how you answer that question will have a lot to do with how you go about ministry. And um, I think one of the things that's so often neglected is just the means of grace, like the ordinary means of grace with this, this vision of like how people change. And um, I think, man, what you're saying is in some ways like a good corrective, even to me. I mean, as someone that does, I preach pretty regularly uh, basically preach half of the year. And, um, I find in my heart at times, like trying so hard to like change people, like trying so hard to say the specific right thing to like, get, get, get people moving or get people changing. And, um, yeah, it can just be easy to put a lot of pressure on yourself. Uh, but again, in a, in a way, it's almost a disconnect between my theology and in my ministry in that sense, because it's like, I know that the spirit of God, it's not, it's not just that the spirit works, but that he has like ordained means that he works through. And I can trust that, you know, I can put my eggs in that basket rather than trying to feel like I have to do it myself. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard to, to live in that place. Um, and then I certainly think there's a pitfall in the other direction where, um, again, like I was saying earlier, I, th- I do think 
in the sermon, in preaching, it's a real moment for the pastor to to be the shepherd of the congregation, the shepherd of the people, you know, where he isn't just delivering a theological lecture, but he is thinking through different categories of people who is here that's like you're talking about, who's here that's weary, um, who's here that they had every intention of reading their Bible this week, but they didn't and they're, they feel terrible about it. And uh, who's here that, um, you know, that is lazy and that needs to be prodded or, you know, whatever, like thinking through these categories. I think the, the Puritans are really good on this, thinking through these different categories and just in, in more and let in less of like a, hey, let me tell you all these detailed ways to live your life. Uh, more like, how can I just encourage, admonish and shepherd you, this group of people who together form up, you know, Christ's bride and, and, and the flock? And, and so, yeah, I don't know, almost finding like a middle ground between not, not, not thinking that the preaching moment is a theological lecture, uh, but at the same time, not thinking that it's like eight steps to fix yourself. And uh, like maybe you know, somewhere in between there, um, you know, I think is a, is a healthy place to land. Yeah, that's good. So I'll, I'm going to pause here for a second for the, the two people who are watching. And I just gave away. For the 200 people that are watching, <laughs> you can ask a question. So as a reminder, I, I'll go ahead and post this to, so everybody can listen to it. Um, if you subscribe, I, I send out the link to the show uh, to everybody um, and say, like, come join. You can chat. Have, have a good time. Um, maybe you're shy. I don't know. So if you've got a question or thought, you're welcome to chat it in the little comment section, and I'll see it, and I'll talk about it. So if you want to. Now's your chance. If you don't, I have no idea what else I'm going to talk about. I sometimes I, brought, I have. Go ahead. I just saying I brought I brought a book with me. So uh, if you, if you want oh yeah, to, that's the easiest thing to do. Yeah. Um. Have you have you read this? Have you heard of this? The Fabric of Theology. No. Okay. Who's uh, that? Richard Lentz. Oh, I know that name. Yeah. All right. I mean, I um just found, I just heard about this. I bought this used. I just heard about this book recently. Um, let's see when this was published. Uh, this was published in 1993. Um, yes. but, um, man, just from the introduction, there's like a few things that I'm like, wow, like this, this guy was really like, I don't know. I think there's probably other people in this camp that were maybe ahead of their time in seeing things like someone like David Wells, um, or some others who were just, you know, looking at evangelicalism and saying like, wait a second, like we are headed in some difficult directions and like, um, but not, not even in necessarily the ways that, that we might think. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to read this uh, quote and I, I would be interested for us to interact with this a little bit. Um, he says, adults who are driven by a, a theological vision uh, sorry, I just blew that quote. All right. Adults who are not driven by a theological <laughs> vision will be driven by a vision of expediency. Many cultural analysts are arguing that expedience has become a dominating value among today's evangelicals. So what he's basically saying is when like there's a good side of kind of ecumenicism and the fundamentalist movement that sort of said, hey, We've got to learn, like, like this is a project that London Lyceum is about, right? Like, we've got to learn to to not 
totally cancel everybody who doesn't, you know, dot every, every I and cross every T that we do theologically. But the danger of that is sort of whittling down your theology to just a few like core basic ideas and, and treating everything else like it's a tertiary issue that like doesn't matter. And then um, what ends up happening is like something has to fill that vacuum and he calls it expediency uh, that ends up filling the vacuum uh, of what theology, where theology should should fill in. So I'm just curious, just based on that quote, if you have any sort of engagements or thoughts, but I have, I had two other quotes I wanted to pull out kind of along those lines. Yeah, I guess my first reaction to it is that sounds legit because I mean, the path of least resistance, right? If, if you're not thinking about it, that's the way you go. My second thought is you, you are thinking theologically when you do that, mm. you're just thinking you have a different framework for what it looks yeah. like to think theologically. That's right. Because I don't know if you can really ever abstract yourself mm. out and say I'm not thinking theologically here. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're, maybe you're not intentionally looking to scripture and to the tradition and other things to like how have these resources shaped my understanding of this answer. You're trying to do it yourself, but it's still a theological approach. It's just a bad one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it sounds like you and I had similar upbringings as far as our church experience and the upside to something or what feels like the sort of existential upside to the ex expediency is like you're kind of just always going with what works you're like oh this works let's do it this works let's do it this works let's do it and if you see some growth or if you see people attracted to that like man it like feels good and it, it just feels like things become really justifiable because um, more people are coming and, you know, more people are getting baptized and it just feels good, you know. Um, but then th there's also this really, you know, ugly side of it as well, which is at some point you begin to cross boundaries. I think both for, from an integrity standpoint, you, you can you can become you can start crossing boundaries. But then obviously, especially from a, from a theological standpoint, you begin asking yourself, well, like, I guess it doesn't really matter. I guess that we don't really have to hold on to that. I guess it doesn't, it's not a really a big deal to uh, hold a hard line on these different truth issues. And uh, yeah, you almost become, you, whether, you, whether you realize it or not, you're no longer driven by glorifying God and you're just driven by attracting people. And that's, uh, yes, it's a really scary place to be. But I think, I think we would look at maybe the big mega church, like you mentioned North Point, like I think we'd look at that. But I, I think like this book is arguing, like it's just, it's seeped in way more to, than oh, we yeah. realize, you know, it's like to, to even like what we kind of think of as like more like maybe smaller or down to earth or grounded churches, like, or even like you mentioned a minute ago, like the way we get drawn into like the political conversations or other things like that, like what, whether we realize it or not, it actually might be more about expediency than, than, than we want to admit. Oh yeah. The pra pragmatism can take many, many forms. Mm -hmm. It's not just a problem for the 5,000 person mega church. It can be just as much of a problem for the 50 person rural church. There's all sorts of things. So we've got, Todd, who's listening in Hawaii, who's like, what time is that? Like 3 p.m. <laughs> David, 
Uh, familiar with Arthur Custance's doorway papers? I have no idea Mm-mm. about who that is. No. Morgan, do you? I don't. I'm showing my ignorance here. No, I'm going to Google it. Google it. Do- the doorway papers? Yeah. I don't know anything about this. Was it related? So now I'm going to have to. I'm gonna have to go research. Was it related to what we're talking about right now? I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I. I don't know anything about this. So I'm gonna have to look at look at some of the stuff and see see what it is, David. I don't. I just don't know. Sorry. I. You know, there. I feel like all the time I'm realizing I still have no idea about all sorts of resources that are out there. There's sometimes where I'm like, man, I've got to go handle on stuff, and then. I realized, wow, there's so much out there that I just have no idea about. There's so much to learn and to understand. But this I feel that way every here. time. Every time I see, uh, like the in- different interviews that you're doing with folks and like popping up, I'm like, where does Jordan find these people? And like, <laughs> how does he know to even find them? And why are they so knowledgeable? And like, it just makes me feel so small. It makes me feel like I don't know anything. I'm like, gosh, well, I'm an look- idiot. Half the time, it's just because I I nerd out about stuff that a lot of Baptists don't nerd out about, so <laughs> I look smart, but that's just because that's like my area. The other half is I'm like, I want to talk about something. I don't know who in the world knows anything about it, and I'll just go ask people that I know mm-hmm. who know stuff about that and say, who should I talk to? Mm-hmm. And then they tell me, and I go meet there you this go. person, and I'm like, wow, this this person's really cool. Really smart. I like, I like talking to them. Nice. Um, and even when I talk to people I know, like Tom Schreiner, he's talking about this view of the millennium that I'm like, I've never heard this in my entire life. How did I not know anything about this? Uh, that's good. Oh, man. Yeah. The doorway papers. Uh, no, I've got nothing. So I'm going to look at I've got it up on my computer now, so I'm going to take a look at it. Um, what else is there? So I found yesterday, not yesterday, maybe somebody linked – Oddly enough, Stephen Wolf linked to it. Um, infamous Stephen. <laughs> Can I say something real this... quick? Can I say something? Sure, about go this? ahead. I just have yeah. a question. Why? What is it about this particular thing that is has grabbed like everyone's attention? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Like, there's so many different things that like come across our radar like every day every month like 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 books that are written or topics or whatever like i feel like this has been the longest sustained interaction on a topic that i've seen in a long time since critical race theory we had that one for at least a year yeah yeah that's true but i mean (laughs) that's like sort of like that's a you know more of a that's not just in the church. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this yeah. seems to be something that like, like if I went and talked to some random person on the street, they, they would be like, what Christian, like what, you know, they, but like, this just feels like for some reason it has just gripped everyone. And like, I don't, I don't get, well, I don't get why it's I, like such, such a big deal. I think there's a lot of factors that make a big deal. So I think that there's a lot of people who look at society and look at drag queen story. Like you mm. take all the most extravagant crazy stuff you can mm-hmm. you can find and, and fill in the blank mm-hmm. you you add in the con- explosive growth of things related to gender reassignment like surgery sort of stuff mm-hmm. there to me it makes sense to say that's unsettling what do i do here about this my political climate is all over the map like it's just very toxic mm-hmm. and so when people come in 
and have the strong arm savior like, yeah, you've got a problem and I've got a solution for it. And I'm going to be very strong. This is a solution. And if you do it, it'll solve it. And here's some Bible verses. Mm-hmm. Not saying that's what people like Stephen are doing. Mm-hmm. I think Stephen's actually very, very, very sharp. Um, I, don't, I don't love his approach sometimes, but like, I, th- I think you get him in the right context and he's like really smart about what he's talking about. Like, mm-hmm. it's, wow, this is really interesting. I can learn from you in this. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas there's other people who don't have that same attitude yeah. or don't have that same level of knowledge. So I, I think there's a, a mixture of factors. Culture is impacting that where mm-hmm. people feel very unsettled. And so then they're ripe for the picking on something like this. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't want to go a, down this road. Oh, Todd, that's a fair Todd answer. Has a, Todd has a question. Can you guys talk about the millennium? What are your personal views and what are the one to two things that convince you the most? Mm, so I'll tell good. you, Todd, man, I, I haven't thought about the millennium at any length for probably eight years at least. <laughs> but there was a period where I did. And that was when I was in college at a dispensationalist school. And I, I think I was – I didn't know what eschatology was until college. Uh, get to college, dispensationalist school. So I assume like maybe I'm that. I read books and I – in my popular imagination, I guess I was a dispensationalist because I, I read Left Behind, and that's what I thought happened. <laughs> so I thought that was in my imagination. That's how everything worked. And then I read, what was it? Uh, I feel like Cornelius Venema. I don't know how to say his name. He has a book on like the millennium or something. He argues for amillennialism. Convinced me. I mean, I was already like at a Calvinist at this point, and so it was just kind of like natural move to say, well, that seems right. So I went amillennial and I've been that way ever since. I haven't felt any desire to really be super interested in the topic again or to really seriously study it with any depth. Tom Schreiner, we had that episode with him talking about this weird new creation view. It sounded plausible to me, sounded interesting. I just don't have the desire to think about it that much, to be honest with you. I, I, I like thinking about other topics more. Maybe that'll change at some point. I don't know. But that's my own opinion. Amillennial makes sense. I like it. I'm cool with it. If it turned out to be pre-millennial, if it turned out to be post-millennial, I'm cool with that too. So, it really I uh, me. I wrote a paper on it in uh, seminary, and um, the I ended up arguing for um, historic pre-millennialism. So it's kind of like the idea that. Uh, it's not related to the dispensational concept. It's not related to uh, the rapture or pre-tribulation rapture, anything like that. Um, But it's just the view that there is a literal thousand year reign. Um, And honestly, like, I think this is what I think is so interesting. I feel like I've come to understand that through the 20th century, like this was a really big deal that you would have an opinion on this. And uh, it had, it was like interconnected with like this whole eschatological scheme that was like people really invested a lot of their time. Like the average Christian, like the average just church going Christian spent a ton of time thinking about these things and pastors taught on them. And um, when I got to seminary, I had never even heard that there was an, like I'd never heard of the idea that there was an actual physical thousand year reign. And I was like, what? Like, this is sounds nuts to me. Like I just, it was just, 
I had never thought about it. You know what I mean? And so I don't know. I, I took a few days and read up on it. And I, at some point I was just like, I just have to pick one of these and argue for it. And so I just kind of went for it. But uh, I definitely have major problems with dispensational premillennialism, but I think that has probably more to do with my covenant theology. And, and then it just sort of unravels the whole thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then from there, I think for me, it's more about like, if I'm you know, just being really honest, like the cash value of not the cash value, but like making sure that whatever view I hold sort of maps on to the rest of my eschatology in a more broad sense. Basically what I mean by that is the already not yet framework. So I'm like, as long as you have a, a good sense of this already not yet framework, I kind of think that you could be an amillennialist and a historic premillennialist and like basically essentially get the same cash value for like your, your life application. Um, but my one, the one thing that I've kind of flopped on is I, I would, I think if I had to right now, I would say I'm amillennial. And, and I think the biggest reason why is at some point I just started thinking like, I, I didn't come up with this, but I heard other people talk about this and I started thinking about it. Like we interpret revelation in all these like symbolic ways and like the numbers throughout the entire book never mean these like literal numbers. And there yep. are people who believe in the millennial reign who go through the entire book of revelation, interpreting all the numbers as symbolic. And then they get to that one number and they're like, no, 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 this is real. This is, this is legit. This is historical. And I just like, what, like, how did, how did you just make that shift? You know, where on all the other numbers, you're, you're totally fine with it being symbolic. And then it's just on this one. And I happen to think that it's just because they honestly have like a, they've already kind of made their mind up. They, they you know, they've yeah. made their mind up. They come to the text, they see it and they're like, Oh look, it says a thousand years. So it must be a thousand years. And um, you know, but you could take Gill's position, which is basically none of the positions. And he tries to like make them all work. So if anybody's interested in looking into Gill, uh, John Gill on this, for, for a way to try to like literally hold all of the positions at once. He tries really hard uh, to pull that off. And it's, um, it's kind of funny actually, but. So like you mentioned, just the interpretation aspect to me, that was a big point of, it seemed to me like there was like this entire interpretive method that you go, you go back to Schofield Ryrie used, but even like you get out of the weird dispensational stuff, mm -hmm. Jim Hamilton, there's just a very literal sort of like, it's gotta mean this, mm -hmm. it's gotta be literal. Mm -hmm. And I just don't find that persuasive as an interpretive method of how we understand the Bible. I don't think that's how the church has understood the Bible for its existence. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't find it persuasive to do that to Revelation 20. And I remember thinking if I took out Revelation 20, this wouldn't even be a question for me. Mm -hmm. I, I would totally be an amillennialist if you take that out. If it's there, uh, then I just listen to Cy Lynn and he tells me it's seven parallel narratives. I'm not going <laughs> to rap for you because I don't want I don't want to hurt your ears or be like other theologians. <laughs> you should rap, man. You should do it. No. We could we could post your picture beside the other theologian who does that, and it would be really funny. No, we're going to pass on that. All right. I, I know another text. Uh, I just pulled this up. That, that I've always like kind of thought was interesting. Um, this is more about 
this would maybe be for, for somebody who um, who is uh, is from that sort of dispensational background. Um, I've always just thought this was an interesting passage in First Thessalonians uh, chapter four. Um, it says, "For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven uh, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we we shall always be with the Lord." Uh, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's First Thessalonians four uh, sixteen through eighteen. And uh, at some point, I just kind of read that. And I was like, doing the logic of it, and I was like, wait, it says that the people who will rise first will be the people who died, and the people who are still alive are then after the people in the graves are are raised up, then the people who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the air. And I always just kind of had a hard time thinking like, how does that square, especially with the idea of like a rapture, that just seems like really odd to try to square um, that that kind of the, tra- the trajectory of that passage with the rapture. Um, but then, I don't know, it also kind of just seems to not make quite make sense of the millennial reign either. Um, so it just kind of feels like the, the, the amillennial position with this kind of simultaneous cosmic intrusion of Jesus returning and that being the end, um, I think more and more I've come to to land in that position. Yeah, that's good. Uh, let's see, what else could I talk? Oh, I'll just tell you guys, if, if you don't know, if you're listening to this, I think both Todd and, and David know who are listening. Got our heart. Uh, let's show it on the camera Ooh. that you won't be able to see when you do it. I've got the journal that we've published here, the very first issue is in print and you can get the digital version as well on uh, liberty of conscience and this is a really cool venture i remember i don't know how many years ago it was five or six years ago a group of reformed baptist brothers we were like emailing back and forth like what can we do to help promulgate uh good sound reformed baptist doctrine and i had an idea of let's do a journal everybody thought yeah this is cool and then someone quashed and said that's a whole lot of work that'll never happen and here, Here it are. is. This is a whole lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you that. But it's, uh, I think it's it's a needed aspect of um, just being able to have resources that have gone through the proper steps uh, and given substantial feedback on different things to help make your essays better. I'm excited where this goes. I've learned a lot in just the typesetting and all that kind of stuff. So this will mm-hmm. be easier next time. But I'm excited to see how that matures over time and how hopefully Lord willing, in the future, this journal will be a premier journal that a lot of people want to submit their stuff to for um, a confessional Protestant background. Mm-hmm. Look to it and say, I get a ton of editorial feedback on this stuff. They don't accept garbage and they publish like stuff that's interesting and mm-hmm. relevant. So I'm excited about what comes from that. That'll be fun. I know as someone that's been minimally involved in some of the editing stuff and even submitting some of my own writing and getting feedback and that sort of thing. I can just speak to the fact that, uh, we're definitely, uh, or you, I would say you and the team is definitely not going willy nilly at any of our ventures. And I would say that especially is true of, of any of the published writing. I think there's lots of, 
uh, detailed, fine work going into the editing process and, and just, you know, really pushing people to think well and write well. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely not like just some guy's blog who's just writing every day and just throwing out whatever ideas comes to his head. I mean, you know, there's a lot of phases of reading and rereading and editing and, 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 um, making alterations that that have gone into these different publications and so yeah man i hope it benefits some people i hope some people are blessed and encouraged and challenged uh by by what they're reading that's coming out from the london lyceum because i know a lot of work is is going into it yeah i think we've learned a lot and gotten better at it i mean when you start out uh you can be a little intimidated by having a senior scholar or somebody publish with you you're like oh can i can i tell them to change something and you become more confident in what you do so now everything that gets published online has gone through at least two of our editors me and somebody else who's mm-hmm. has an understanding of that topic and then as far as the journal stuff i mean it's just typical double blind peer review so i go get somebody who's an expert in that area and they read it a cool thing even just a couple of weeks ago i returned reports uh, to somebody who had submitted an essay and they replied back and said, look, even if you had just outright rejected this, I would have valued this so much because of the the feedback that I got on these things. And now part of that's like, well, it's probably because you just haven't submitted to a major journal before that <laughs> takes, takes, uh, essay seriously. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you get desk rejected, so you don't get any comments. And sometimes you get a crappy reviewer and you get no comments, but there is a typical process that in these if you're going to a good journal and you're getting good reviewers, you're giving people feedback that helps them. So even if your article doesn't get published, it's a beneficial experience to learn and grow from those things. I know I've grown and learned from rejections all the time. I t- but as I've gotten older, I've realized not everybody's comments are always accurate. I shouldn't listen to everybody. So it's just a, <laughs> it's a learning experience to understand what, what feedback is good and what should be, no, I don't want to listen to that. Yeah. That's fair. It's good stuff, man. Well, we've been talking for 53 minutes. Um, so I, I think this is probably about time. I've got a lot of stuff to do tonight myself. So I've got it where we are in the nursery. So we're having our third, third kid, uh, do soon. I I'm putting up a chair rail and those like shadow boxing things. So I've put up the, like that initial chair rail. I painted that, got that ready to go. Now I've got to get the shadow boxing stuff on the wall, uh, get that all in there and painted and everything. Nice. So it's it's taken longer than I thought, but it's been it's been easier than I thought, but also more tedious than I had imagined. That's 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 the earning your dad stripes, though, man. That's that's what it's all about. Wow. Now this bookshelf, I didn't do that myself. <laughs> I, somebody else do that. Uh, I fixed my dryer. Uh, like I was like scurrying to fix my dryer before I got on. Uh, but it's like the third time it's broken in like the last like eight weeks. I'm like, gosh, I know I'm gonna have to buy a new dryer, but I'm just dreading it. And I'm like, those are the worst. Can purchases. I just, can I just like, keep fixing this for like $10? Like how many times can I just keep yeah. fixing the same part? You know, that keeps breaking. I'm like, oh gosh. Well, I think our last, uh, the fridge that I had at my last house, the, the water dispenser stopped working and the ice maker stopped working. And I could never figure out why. And I tried to replace like everything the internet said to replace and never fixed it. And I was just like, whatever, not buy a new one. I'm just going to have to live with it. And suddenly the ice maker started working again. And I was like, okay, see, now we're good. So we've just got our little filtered water thing and it's annoying, but it's, it's better than buying a new fridge. I don't know if you're like me, but like there's definitely times in my life where I'm like, 
my time is worth more than my money right now and this is just oh yeah this is just driving me nuts that i'm having to waste my time on this i would rather just spend the money that's a lesson that has been Ugh. difficult for me to learn but i ha- to me like there's because i used to like i would fix everything on my car myself and then i got to a like even just i would do the oil change uh, and then i realized you know it takes you like an hour plus to change the oil like even if you're really fast like just all the cleanup and all the kind of stuff that you have to like get it up it is and i'm still spending x amount of dollars. it is not worth my time to do that i'm gonna take it to somebody pay the money and i'm gonna save the time like it's just yeah that's that's been difficult for me to, to wrap my head around, but it's been something that I very much have taken and tried to apply myself. No doubt. Anyway, well, it's good thanks to, for good guys. to see you, man. Yeah, this was fun. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Everybody's been listening. You know this is the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you guys soon and keep us posted on what's happening, what you want to hear, and we'll chat about it. Anyway, talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.